to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, I'm delighted to be with you today and share with you again from a series of messages that I have entitled Victory, Our New Normal. And uh, since the beginning of the year, we have been looking at the first three chapters of the book of Joshua and kind of recognizing what victory looks like. And I'm, I'm telling you today that I really believe that if you will prayerfully let God speak to you from these passages of scripture we've looked at, that there can be an amazing transformation in your life. I'm just becoming more and more convinced as, as I get into this study and what God is teaching me and what he's showing me about walking in him and the power that is available to us is just transforming. And, and so I just pray every day that God will allow you to be as encouraged and blessed and, and grow through this journey as I have in, in my study of, of this truth. Because I've just come to recognize that so many of us talk about victory and we talk about the peace of God and, and we talk about the grace of God and the power of God, but we don't live it. We, we talk about it as if it's something reserved for just a handful of people or maybe some biblical characters. And many of us have just settled into living in our own power, convinced that maybe it's not meant for me. And I believe that what Jesus said he meant when he said, I've come that you might have life fully. That you could know power, you could know victory. And I believe that as we look at the journey of the nation of Israel, as they walk into the promise of all God has for them, we can learn how we can walk into the promise of all that God has for us. We have discovered that God is very specific in these first three chapters and what he tells Joshua and how he leads the nation of Israel. And he never does anything without purpose or reason. And I believe that everything he tells them with these very specific instructions offers encouragement and challenge and perhaps even for us a path that we can follow into the purpose and plan and and power that God has for us. Last time we were together, we were in part two of a sermon that talks about accessing the power of God. How do we access God's power? How can we walk in his power and in his strength? And, and I think that as we watch the nation of Israel cross the, red, the, the, the Jordan River into the promised land, we we find a pattern that we can follow that helps us understand that truth. My first attempt at this sermon was to talk to you about three points, and then I began to realize that, you know what, we, we don't have time. We've got to stop and look at each one of these points individually, and so today we're going to look at the final point of that same sermon that we started two weeks ago. So if you have your Bible, turn once again to the book of Joshua chapter 3, and we'll read beginning with verse 5 and, and kind of walk through some of these passages that are familiar to you, and by the time we're done, you'll be very familiar with all that happens here. 
in this passage of scripture, what we're looking for now is, is insight into how we might experience the power of God. Joshua tells the nation of Israel to, that they're about to experience and see tomorrow the wonder of God, and, and they did. They saw the power of God unleashed and experienced it in their own lives. And as we walk through the text, we've discovered that there are three things that are connected to God's power. If I'm going to know God's power, I believe we can learn from the text that that God's power is connected to God's purpose. That first time together on this subject, we discovered that God's not so much interested in using his power to accomplish your purpose. So many of us struggle wondering where is God because we're praying that God will do what we want him to do. We almost see God as some vending machine that we, if we can get the, the, the change right as we deposit it, we can get God to do what we want him to do. And, and what we discovered together was that God is not interested in accomplishing your purpose. But God will use his power to accomplish his purpose. Now, here's the good news. We discovered that God's purpose includes you. That God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you can know and experience the power of God every day in your life as you live out his purpose. And we discovered that, that his purpose was eternal. That before you were ever born, God had a plan and a purpose for your life. And we discovered that his purpose is essential. You'll never really live life fully and never fulfill your potential unless you know God's purpose for your life, unless you figure out what your shape is. You remember we talked about our spiritual gifts and our heart or our passion, our abilities, our personality, the experiences that we've had in life. All of those things come together to make us who we are. And God uses all of that to call us into a purpose and releases his power as we live that purpose. And, and, and we discovered that not only is it essential to me to become all that I've, I've become, but it's exciting, this thing that God has called us to. There's not a dull moment or boring moment in serving God. It's an adventure that God calls us to. So if you want to know the power of God, then, then you got to know the purpose of God. That's where his power is released. But secondly, we also discovered that God's power is connected to God's timing. Now that one is not as much fun. The first one's powerful. The second one I told you was painful. That God's purpose is connected to his timing. That God is not committed to your timetable. He doesn't seem to, to, to be motivated to do things when I think he needs to do them the way I think he needs to do them. But we discovered that he's never late. Now, he's never early. But he's never late. He's always on time. And that God sometimes uses in our life delay. We'll pray and ask for something that doesn't happen. And sometimes we give up and move on. And, and, and God's delay is not a no. It's just it, it's not the right time. And the delay is always an opportunity for us to grow in 
faith. It's an opportunity for us to come face to face with our own inadequacy, our own inability. It, it, it gives us an opportunity to say, God, there's nothing else, and if you don't come through, there is no plan B. I'm done. Because his delay gives opportunity for him to be glorified in our life. So we talked about those two things. Go back and listen to those two lessons if you've not done that because it brings us up to where we are in our study today. Because what we will discover today is that God's timing is not only connected to his purpose and to his, or, or God's power is not only connected to his purpose and, and his timing, but God's power is also connected to our obedience. Now the first two, God's purpose and God's timing, are his business alone. He doesn't ask your permission. He doesn't ask what you think. He doesn't ask you to get involved at all in his purpose and plan and in his time. That's his business. But the third one, the third one is our part. And even though he gives us the ability to obey, and, and our ability to obey him comes from him, we alone are accountable for the third one. You alone are accountable for obedience. So with that in mind, let's look at our text and, and then we'll kind of unpack what, what, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and with these three, resources available to us, we'll be able to understand how to access the power of God and to walk in his power in our daily living. So Joshua chapter three, just kind of for context, beginning as we did with verse five, we'll, we'll, we'll move forward. And, and I may draw your attention to a couple of things as we walk through the text and ask you to circle a couple of, uh, of thoughts that will kind of build for our time together today. Then Joshua in verse five, chapter three, said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There's the power of God about to be displayed tomorrow among them. Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to notice Ark of the Covenant. How many times he uses the term Ark of the Covenant in chapter three as he walks through that. He said, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying, look, at, here it is again, the Ark of the Covenant saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the sons uh, of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord and your God. Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. I want you to circle the word living God. The living God is among you. 
and that he will assuredly dispose from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hevite, the Prezerites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, look in verse 11, behold, there it is again, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Now I want you to, to, to circle the Lord of all the earth in verse 11. The Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into Jordan. Now let's jump down to verse 17. And the priests who carried the ark of the covenant, there it is again, of the Lord, stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing. Now we've dissected and looked at all that happened in those moments, but what we are looking to today is how the wonder of God unfolds on that next day as God shuts off the flow of the Jordan River to lead his people across. We've discovered three components to that. First, his purpose, God's plan and purpose and then God's timing, he tells them to wait. He, he orchestrates exactly when and how everything will happen. And then finally, there, there is this component of obedience. In our story, Joshua steps up to cross the Jordan without hesitation and without any question. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the importance of obedience in chapter 1. In the very beginning of our journey together is God tells Joshua that, that he is to, uh, to be strong and courageous and, and that he is to, to, uh, to, to, to read and study and pour over the Word of God and not depart from it to the right or to the left. And we talked about the value of op obedience here but what we recognize now is by the time we get to chapter 3, Joshua steps up, even though God says, hey, I want you at a flood season when we've given you three days to watch the water rise and to watch the Jordan become an impossible challenge before you, waiting for my timing, waiting to recognize that you in your own power can't accomplish it. Now I'm asking you, Joshua, to do the unthinkable. I'm asking you to cross this Jordan at the worst possible moment in the year to cross it. And Joshua, without hesitation, leads the nation of Israel and the priests to the edge of the water, even to the point that he instructs them to walk into the water. And when their feet go into the water, God stops the flow of the Jordan in that flood season, so the water begins to back up and build up into a wall, and, and all of the water recedes that, that, that has been stopped, and then the, the, the ground dries, and this massive nation, millions of people begin to cross over the Jordan as God had instructed, keeping your eyes on the ark and all of that. But the simple question is this, how is Joshua able to do that? How is it that he was able to tell the priest, okay, guys, we're 
crossing this Jordan. The water is raging. I mean, the current is strong. Trees are being washed downstream. And God says, in the most unopportune time, now's the time, Josh. The water is as high as it's going to get. It is raging. Now's the time. Go for it. And Joshua, without any hesitation, says, okay, we're, we're there. Let's go. Let's move. What was it that enabled Joshua to have that kind of obedience? And, and I think the answer is simple. He trusted God. He just trusted that what God said he meant. And what I want you to understand is, listen to me, obedience is the evidence of faith. Obedience is the expression of our faith. Now, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, he actually goes back to this moment and looks at the nation of Israel as they come into the promised land. And he writes about that in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, this is what he says. He says, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And the next verse says this. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that the reason that the nation of Israel had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, the reason that they, they had come to this very spot and God had led them initially to cross, but they, they, they refused, they weren't unable to do that. And the writer of Hebrews says, why is it that God in the very beginning brought them to this point and invites them into the promised land, but they don't go? He said, well, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because of their disobedience. And in the very next verse, he says, it's because of their unbelief. So here's the question I have. Which one is it? Was it disobedience or was it unbelief? That wouldn't allow them. He, he says the reason that God didn't bring them in is because of their their disobedience, and, and in the next verse he says, because of their unbelief. And, and honestly, I believe the answer is both. That you see, unbelief is just the flip side of the coin for disobedience. Disobedience and unbelief are the same coin, just two sides. Because here's the truth, you act on what you believe and you obey who you trust. I'll give me an example. If I were to ask you a question today, if I were to say, how many of you believe the Bible? How many of you believe this book is true? It is right. It is God's word. If I were to ask you that question, I think most every one of you would probably raise your hand. Most of you would say, I believe the Bible is true. I believe that this is God's word. But, but here's the truth. You believe what you obey. 
You see, we have a tendency sometimes to approach the Word of God, and there are parts of it, even though we say we believe it all. There are parts of it that we, we, we are not doing. And, and you know why we're not doing it? It's because we don't really believe that part. I'm not really sure that part applies to me. I, I mean, there are some things that the Bible says that really are outdated, right? I mean, there are things that, that we've discovered and learned in all of our intelligence today, or we make excuses for why we disobey God's word in our life. We always have a reason, but here's the bottom line. You obey what you believe. If you're not doing what God's word says because you don't believe that part of his word. You're not willing to, you don't believe that he's serious about that. You believe there's an exception. You believe you know better. Obedience comes from trust. Now, I want to ask you this question. If obedience comes from trust, where does trust come from? If I trust the Bible, and that's why I'm up, so where does trust come from? I believe that trust comes from knowledge. Let me give you a little formula. Knowledge of God equals faith in God. Faith in God equals obedience to God. Knowledge of God leads to or equals faith in God. The more I know about God, the more I know God, the more faith I place in him. When I know that he is faithful and good and right and just, then I place my faith in him. And when I place my faith in him, because I know that he is righteous and good, and just and powerful, then I obey him because I put my faith in him. And obedience becomes the byproduct of that experience. So what I noticed in the text before us is that when Joshua tells the people of God that God has a plan and he has called us to embrace the plan and we need to accept that plan and move forward, he, he he includes the character of God because he knows that it is the knowledge of God that will enable you to place your faith in God that will result in your obedience to God. Because Joshua knows that, that believing God is hard sometimes. I mean... God's asking us to step into the water at the worst moment. And why don't we wait a few months and the water will go down? We don't have to go across right now. It's not necessary. We, we, why are you doing We We want to argue with God when he leads us. And so what does Joshua do? He says, well, uh, li listen, first of all, let me remind you who God is. Because it's knowledge of God that equals faith in God, that equals obedience to God. And, and there are three things that he does that I pointed out to you as we read through the text. He first of all says, I, I, I want you to know that this is the Lord of all the earth. 
He said, I, I, in fact, he says that in verse 11. And then he says it again, actually, in, in verse 13. In verse, in verse 11, he says, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. He doesn't always say that, but he does here. The Lord of all the earth. And if you'll look on down to verse 13, he says it again. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who are carrying the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. Now, why does he do that? I think the reason he does that is because he wants them to understand if he is the Lord of all the earth, that means he's the Lord of the Jordan River, right? If he's the Lord of all the earth and he tells you to step into the Jordan River, then he can tell the Jordan River to let you pass because he's the Lord of all the earth. Joshua is saying, guys, don't be afraid to trust God and, and the key is to know who he is. If you know that he's the Lord of all the earth, then don't be afraid of the earth. Don't be afraid of the river. Don't be afraid of what he's, I know what he's asking you to do seems crazy and outlandish and it doesn't match. But if you know who he is, then he's the God of the Jordan too. And he'll stop the river. So if we know who he is, whatever he asks us to do, we can trust that he has the power and the authority to do it. He is the God of all the earth. Knowing who he is equals faith. Faith equals obedience. And you know what's really interesting? What that means to me as I was thinking about it this morning, it means that there is no blind faith. Have you ever heard the concept of blind faith? Well, we just need to have blind faith. We just trust God. No. What's your faith in? It's not blind. I know who he is. And because I know who he is and because I am reminded that he is the God of all the earth, if he tells me to do that, then he's going to have to tell the Jordan. So, so in Joshua's mind, if God tells me to cross the Jordan and it doesn't make any sense to anybody else, it doesn't matter. He's the Lord of all the earth. So if he tells me to do it, he's going to stop the Jordan. And my trust is in him. Secondly, did you notice the second thing he does though? Not only does he call him the Lord of all the earth, he also calls him the living God in verse 10. By this you will know the, the, the living God. Look, look at what it says. Joshua said to them, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. Why, why was he saying living God? Because he's ultimately saying this. I want you to know something. This is, uh, our, our God's not wood. And our God's not stone. And our God's not made out of gold. Our God's alive. And if he is alive, that means he is aware of the circumstances you face. He's not surprised that the Jordan River's out of its banks. It wasn't a miscalculation on God's part where he's saying, oh, wow, I am taken by surprise. I didn't see that coming. He is a living God. 
He is aware of the circumstances you face in life. And he will drive out the enemy from before you. He knows there's an enemy. He knows that when you get on the other side of the Jordan, guys, that the promised land has got Hittites and Jebusites and, and, and Gagersites. I, I, he's got all these ites living in the land. And you know what? That's not a surprise. God's not going to say, wow, I didn't know it was occupied. My bad. You should have crossed over the first time, and they've even grown since then. No, he's a living God. He is absolutely aware of the circumstances that we face. And here's another important truth. And he is active in them. He will make the enemy flee from before you. He's a living God. You know what that looks like in the New Testament? In the book of James, it says this. If you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. He's the living God. You and I have placed our faith in a living God. The, the, the cross, and whenever we sing about the cross, always recognize the, it, the cross includes the resurrection. He's alive. And he is aware of your circumstances. And he knows the challenges that you face. And he is involved in those. Third thing he says is this. Joshua reminds the people the reason he says over and over again, 10 times he says the Ark of the Covenant. Is he has reminded the nation of Israel of something that was very dear to them, something that gets lost sometimes with us. He was reminding them that God is a covenant God. That God had entered into a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. God is a covenant God with us. The New Testament, Jesus having the last supper with his disciples says to them today, this is my new covenant with you made in my blood. That covenant that he refers to, he made with, with Abraham. And he is saying to his people, this God that I'm asking you to trust is a covenant-keeping God. Seven times in this chapter, he says that the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the people there knew what a covenant was. They were a covenant people. In the Middle East, they still know covenants. There were eight steps of covenants. We've talked about a covenant before and what that looks like, but... But it literally means that I enter into a relationship with God. I could put it to you this way. There's, there is a divine exchange that takes place. When I become a child of God, there's an exchange that takes place. I get his life and he gets mine. I give myself to him and I receive from him all that I need. It's really fascinating. There are eight different steps of the covenant relationship. When a person entered into covenant, there were very specific things they did. This came to the mind of the Israelites when he says this. They would allot it, when they entered into a covenant relationship, they would exchange outer garments because they didn't just get to go to Dillard's and buy clothes. Clothes were handmade, and if you had an outer garment and, and it did have some color in it, everybody knew you by that garment. That's what you wore. And if I saw you in a marketplace way away, I could recognize you even if you have your back turned because I recognize the garment that you're wearing. But if you enter into a covenant relationship with someone, you exchange outer garments. I get your robe, you get mine. And all of a sudden we're in the marketplace and you see me with somebody else's robe on. You know one of two things has happened. Either I stole it from him or we have entered into a covenant relationship. 
The second thing that happens is we exchange belts. The belt is where they put the money. We exchange belts. It literally means that all of the resources that I have belong to you and all of the resources you have belong to me. If you get in a bind, you come to me. I am bound to provide for you and you are bound to provide for me. They would exchange swords. That would literally mean you and I exchange enemies. Your enemy is my enemy. My enemy is your enemy. There's practical reasons attached to all of those things, but it literally means there's a divine exchange. My identity changes. When I accept Jesus as my Savior, I die to self, and he becomes my identity. He lives in me. My resources become his resources, and his become mine, and he is the one who fights battles for me. His enemy becomes my enemy. Now, sometimes we think, well, who is the enemy of God? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, Satan... Well, yeah, and, and so I want you to understand, and we're like, well, thank you. You gave me Satan as an enemy? No, he gave you a defeated Satan. He beat him on the cross, so the enemy he gives you is already defeated. That's why he says if you will resist him, he will flee. He's already been defeated. You stand in my power. I could go on and on walking through the covenant relationship, but I think you get the picture what are you saying to the nation of Israel is you can trust him because he's entered into a covenant relationship with you. And I want to tell you something today. You can trust him too because he's entered into a covenant relationship with you when you received him as Savior and Lord. How do I access his power? By being obedient. How can I be obedient? Recognize he's the God of all the earth. Know who he is. He's the God of all the earth. He's a living God. He knows the circumstances you face, and he's involved in those circumstances. He is a God who has entered into a covenant relationship with you. Now, I want to tell you very quickly, I'm going to end here. My first impulse sometimes when I see this is to say, yes, this is great. He is the God of all the earth, and there are a few mountains I need moved. Thank you. He is a living God and will drive out the enemy. And I've got some problems that I need you to drive out. He is a covenant-keeping God that I can trust and, and, and has the resources that I can access. We have a tendency to think of God in terms of providing for me. And it's not about God providing for me, it's about me knowing who he is so that I can be obedient to him. And in walking in obedience, I access his power. The key to victory is to obey him, to walk his path. So here's my final question to you. Are you living in obedience? Is it possible that there are areas in your life that you know God says no, and you're doing it anyway? Are there areas in your life that you know God said, this is what I want you to do, and you're not doing it? You're walking in willful disobedience, expecting God to bless you. And he says, I, I, I can't. My victory is reserved for those who are obedient. And I know it's hard because he asks us to put our feet in a 
raging river. And what he asks of us sometimes doesn't make any sense to the world. But if you remember who he is, remember who he is. He is the God of all the earth. He's the living God. He's the covenant God. You can trust him. And when you trust him, you put your faith in him. And when you put your faith in him, you do what he says. And, and I want to tell you something. When you do what he says, you will behold the wonders of God. Let's pray together. As you bow your head, is it possible that the Holy Spirit's put his finger on an area in your life and said, Here, here's, here's the problem right here. You know, God's made provision even for that. The scriptures say, if we will confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and restore us. And today you can return to him, you can repent and say, God, this is the area where I have stepped into my life and I'm doing my thing, not your thing. These are the things you've told me to do that I've not done. These are the things that you have told me not to do that I'm doing. And I'm turning from that today. And I'm gonna just trust that you will give me the power to overcome in those areas. But today I turn to you, I confess it, I make no excuse for it, it's sin. I've just lived in disobedience. Here it is. And I ask you to forgive me and restore me. Father, right now, all over this room and throughout the land, for those that are listening, there are people that are confessing to you their sin. And you say that if we confess, if we agree that we're sinners, no excuses, just all out there. You know it. We know it. You will forgive us. And Father, you will restore us. So right now, as they turn from their sin to you, I pray, God, that you will restore them and that as they begin to know more about you, you would just begin to reveal more of yourself to them. And as they begin to know more about you, their faith would grow and they would know that we can trust you and whatever you tell us to do, we do. And in that experience, your power. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.